Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Stay Classy San Diego Show on The Answer San Diego. This program is dedicated to keeping you informed and engaged with the latest news and trending events in the San Diego region. Join us on a weekly exploration as we sit down with prominent political figures, insightful analysts, industry professionals, and influential community members. Now, here's your host, Steve Wire. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to today's episode. We're going to have on a couple of people to talk about homelessness in San Diego for the second part of our series on this issue. Today, we're bringing in Michael McConnell on my right, and we have Levi Giafalioni. Did I say it right? Yep. On my left. And I just wanted to say before we get going that um, a lot of times on this show, we do episodes where we interview political leaders. But today, I wanted to do something where we actually bring in two people who are sort of on the front lines of the issue, people that are dealing with homelessness on the ground, as it were, and sort of have a different perspective on the issue. So uh, Michael is a recognized leader in the the fight against homelessness. He has served on multiple homelessness advisory committees, including having served as the vice chair of the regional task force on homelessness. Um, He's a thought leader on the topic. He's presented at conferences across the country, including the National Alliance to End Homelessness Conference. Um, He was previously a member of the San Diego Grantmakers Homelessness Working Group and has helped establish funders together to end homelessness San Diego. In the past seven years, McConnell has focused on advocating against the criminalization of homelessness in San Diego and has directed his philanthropy and volunteer time to solving the issue. Um, Levi, on my left, has been working in the homelessness field services for about five years after overcoming his own struggle with homelessness. He advocates on behalf of people still on the streets by exposing the gaps and addressing misconceptions about the experience of being unhoused. Levi is a member of Lived Experience Advisors, a group of formerly homeless individuals advocating for solutions. Thanks, gentlemen, for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Um, Before we get into some questions, um, I wanted to take a step back and give you both an opportunity to talk about your um, really lived experience with um, the issue. Um, Levi, in particular, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, coming from the background that you have and having lived the life that you have, um, why is this something that you've dedicated your life to essentially. And why, why is this sort of like so crucial for you? Um, yeah, definitely. So one of the first things, uh, that we always kind of hear in the misconceptions is people say, Oh, you know, they just need to get a job. They just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And, um, so the first job that I got into when I, uh, was getting, regaining my stability, uh, was actually a debt collector. So I think that we can all agree that's one of the uh, <laughs> most hated professions, so to speak. But that was how I was, you know, getting my grip back into uh, uh, becoming stabilized, right? And um, so, and then I went from that to sign spinning, which I liked a lot. And I would find that throughout the day, sign spinning, there would be a lot of unhoused people that would come by. And would just strike up conversation and we would have, you know, these really like powerful moments that I remembered from when I was on the streets where, you know, they would just have some kind of wisdom, some kind of life lesson that I could learn from them just in however long they were willing to spend with me. And that started making me uh, decide that I really needed to be working in homeless services to give back to um, not only because I experienced it, but because I still have friends that I was out there with who still are unhoused um, because of like varying conditions. So um, yeah. And so that was ultimately what made me wanted to dedicate my life to this field. And mm-hmm. it's something I'm super passionate about. It's not, I don't have to uh, do a whole lot of thinking and just, you know, yeah. Yeah. You feel like sort of compelled, like given your background, given your lived experience with the issue, you sort of feel compelled, like, cause you had no other choice, but to um, dedicate your life to this. And I wanted to ask, like, do you um, like, what was the transition like moving from like where you were to sort of where you are now? Like how did you personally overcome um, the challenges that you faced to get to where you are now today? Um, So for me, uh, there was a great deal of, even in the beginning of um, accepting that help, I had been um, very like wounded, so to speak, and let down by people who had, you know, promised to help and, and promised various things. Um, 
And so when I finally started working really closely with outreach workers, that led to me doing therapy and case management and um, uh, sorry, lost my train of thought. No, you're fine. Um, could you repeat the question? Sorry. No, just like sort of explaining that transitional period for you of like, you know, you were somebody who was unhoused. You were, um, you know, living under very challenging circumstances, but you moved over time to a place where now not only are you self-sufficient, um, but beyond that, you're actually providing for other people. You're actually um, you're helping other people. You're actually dedicating your life to this this field. So what was that transitional period like for you? Yeah. Um, and this goes to speak to how much that supportive services is needed when somebody's getting off the streets because there was a time period too where ultimately I wasn't living in transitional programs and places like that anymore. I was working. I had some income. Definitely was still rent burdened but was able to get an apartment. Um, and at that time though – all of the support networks that I had built up through the homeless services, my case managers, my therapists, um, all those people disappeared because I was now housed, thus not qualifying for those services anymore. Not to mention that there just weren't programs um, like residential programs in the area I was staying. So once I pretty much got like a reasonable amount of stability, I kind of uh, lost that support services. Mm. Uh, now we have like permanent supportive housing where they can have case managers. And then there's also organizations, some, not all, that can offer wraparound services. And something like that is is really crucial to have. So Absolutely. Michael, I want to turn to you. So you served as the vice chair of the regional task force on, um, on the homeless. And I wanted to, to ask you about that experience, what that sort of taught you and – yeah, sort of how that carries over into the work you do now. Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll start just a little bit before that. Uh, as a longtime San Diegan and uh, business owner here, now retired, I wanted to get involved in this issue, and I did it just like I started my business. I just started to learn from the people on the street and what they needed and wanted. So I've spent a lot of time out on the street. So before I ever became involved in the regional task force on the homeless, I was working with folks. I was traveling around the country. I was learning as much as I could about this issue, uh, reading all the research, just figuring out what cities were doing things right, what cities were doing things wrong, uh, what was working across the country, what wasn't working, what kind of direction the federal government was moving because they were starting to use a much more evidence-based approach. And from there, I wanted to get more involved in what was going on here locally. And it was kind of hard to figure out back then, 14 years ago, well, when I probably 12, 13 years ago, when I started getting involved in uh, the regional task force and the, the different committees here, it was kind of hard to figure out who was actually in charge of our system, what was actually going on, mm. uh, how were people able to get help. And I just found that this was just a very dysfunctional system here in San Diego. And it was actually extremely hard for people to get help and even know how to get help. So I figured the regional task force, which was our local body and still is our local body that's actually responsible for our regional approach to homelessness, was supposed to be doing this, was supposed to be providing this. So I figured that was the nucleus, and that's where I wanted to get involved. And I started to get on all their committees, and it was kind of mostly just providers at that point, kind of throwing money up into the air and seeing who could catch it. Hmm. It wasn't a very strategic process. They re were receiving a large pot of grant funding from the federal government to distribute to the providers. And I wanted them, I wanted the task force to actually do that in a much more strategic way and to invest in providers that were doing the most recent evidence-based approaches, getting as many people into permanent housing and off the streets as possible. So I learned a lot through that experience. And one of the things that I helped that organization do was to morph into the organization it is now. Uh, which has kind of become a big bureaucracy, although they provide some things much better than they used to do. I would say some things they do worse than they used to do. They're mm. certainly putting out better data so we can understand our, how badly our homeless service system is performing, where we kind of always knew it was performing very poorly, but now we actually have the data to show how badly yeah. it's performing and how few mm. people our system is getting into housing, even though we're spending a tremendous amount of money. Now, what I also learned, unfortunately, was how entrenched we were into our dysfunction in San Diego. And through my work with the task force and various other committees across the region and uh, doing convenings and different things, I was bringing in national experts to try to help our local um, folks here. I realized that it was kind of just beating your head up against the wall over and over and that things weren't really changing. We'd have meetings. 
We would talk about all these great things, but nothing would change. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that still happens till today. I listen to our mayor saying the same things that I heard people say 10 years ago. A lot of talk, very little action, very little strategy. There's no overarching strategy in the region. And, and that's kind of where we're at today. And so what I've done is I've actually pulled back from a lot of the things that I used to do, working inside the system to try to push things forward in a more positive way to really being a more vocal outside critic and uh, truth teller about what actually are the problems, what's working, what's not. Um, certainly the criminalization and different things aren't working because they've been doing that ever since I've been working on this issue and it's only getting worse. Uh, and, and just trying to be a voice for certainly for folks out on the street, but just uh, somebody who's not affiliated with any of the organizations or government I don't work for anybody. I don't take anybody's money for this. I do it strictly as a volunteer effort. It's my, I call it my retirement job. I do this seven days a week and I'm out on the street some part of every day, if not all day long, some days. And so I have a good finger on the pulse of what's going on out there. And I actually see it firsthand. I do a lot of documenting of the police interactions with, with homeless people. Uh, Yeah. So it's a lot of the things that I've worked on have informed my opinion, but I've spent a tremendous amount of time educating myself and certainly my best teachers have been the folks who are out on the street who are experiencing the issue. Yeah. And, but I've learned from a lot of people all across the country and I've, I take it all forward with my work up until today. Sure. Um, I, I want to just mention a couple of things like, so I want to touch on a couple of things you said in terms of the money that's being allocated towards homelessness in our County. Um, Sort of your experience on the task force was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, essentially that there was a lot of grants being handed out, but the money was sort of thrown in the air to whichever groups um, wanted to catch it. And there's a few statistics I just want to read off real quick. So um, I was doing some research before, and it looks as though over the last two years, we've or the last um, seven years, excuse me, we've spent about around $2 billion, give or take, countywide on homelessness. Um, that's at the county regional level. Um, about It's about $630 million, I think, in the last two years. Um, and there's a lot of, of talk about like where does the money go? Like does the money actually reach the streets? Does it actually reach the people who it's trying to help? And the impression that I'm getting from talking to political leaders, from talking to people like yourselves, is that um, there's just a lack of strategy. There's a sort of dissonance of you know the money is there. Like people always talk about the need for funding, but the money actually reaching the people who need it the most. Um, homelessness has increased according to the regional task force on, on homelessness. Um, the organization you worked with, uh, Michael, homelessness has actually increased by 14% this year already. That was a, a mid-year report that just came out in, in June. And, um, there's an out, there's an, there's a disconnect between the people who are, um, seeking services. So 15, over 15,000 people are seeking housing services. Um, but only 11, about, 11 to 12,000 people were moved into housing the last year. So that tells us that the problem is far from being addressed, that there's actually a lot more people who are seeking the services and receiving um, housing. Um, so I want to um, ask you, Michael, in terms of like the money that's being spent on homelessness versus um, the money that's actually reaching people, like what's going on there? What's, what's the disconnect like where we're not actually seeing the impact on the streets? Well, you brought up a lot of issues. We could have a whole show just on this. <laughs> But just to kind of boil it down, first I want to say there's a lot of people like Levi who are out there on the street on the front lines, the actual front lines workers who aren't getting paid a lot of money. Oftentimes they're in poverty themselves and one very short step away from homelessness who are working hard every day to get as many people as they can into housing with very, very little support from leadership in their own organization sometimes, but certainly very little support from our elected leaders, uh, from other leaders across the community who are criticizing uh, more than actually helping provide the real solutions. Oftentimes, those are the folks who are creating the roadblocks for our frontline workers to get the job done. One of the biggest barriers, of course, is actually accessing housing. So you can get somebody ready. You can have all their documents ready, get them ready to move in. There's nowhere to move in. You're not going to have a successful outcome. All that being said, I it's not just about money. I say this all, all the time as a, as a lifelong business owner, uh, you can't just invest money on top of things that are not working. You have to fix the, 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 the base of the problem with our system, not with people, but with our system before you just throw money on it because you end up just wasting a lot of money. And that's what we're doing right now. 
We're spending a lot of money on redundant services when there's no places for folks to go. So we're doing a lot of outreach. We're doing a lot of sheltering. We're doing a lot of activity, okay? So there's a lot of people doing a lot of work. So the money's going to people who are doing work, trying to help folks, but the folks are still homeless because there's not that last step. And the last step into the housing or more appropriate places for people to be is not there. And that is the fault of our elected leaders who decide to invest in other things versus into housing. And they decide to pass policies and to put barriers up to providing housing and other different services, other different long-term options for folks. And so there's just this incredible roadblock. So we do all this work. We spend all this money. The person is still homeless. We may be providing a whole wide array of services to folks. may be providing mental health, uh, substance use, physical health services. People are rotating through the hospitals over and over at a tremendous cost, helping people who are living on the streets, who are dying on our streets because of medical conditions, because they don't have a roof over their head. They get all of this help. They get stabilized. And what happens? They're kicked back out on the street because there's nowhere else for folks to go. So we spent all that money. And we're back on square one, right? And then we go through that whole process again, keeping the person from dying a a little bit longer, but not solving their homelessness, not really solving those underlying issues. So there's a lot of reasons why we're wasting a lot of money. And what our elected leaders are currently doing won't fix that. And so them just throwing more money at this isn't going to help. So I'm not, you don't, you very rarely hear me say that this is a money issue. Now, there is a great deal of money that is needed for the housing aspect, for the housing part of this. And that's that's all part of this, but it's 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 even beyond just homelessness, right? Because there's many of your listeners right now that are saying, I can barely pay my rent now. I'm I'm skipping a meal or I'm skipping a um, a prescription that's sixty or a hundred dollars. I can't afford it because I need to eat or I need to pay my rent. So a lot of your listeners understand this housing issue. It yeah. goes far beyond homelessness. It's all connected, though. But at the root of all of this is we don't have enough housing that people can afford to live in, and it's creating a very unstable environment for our entire community all across the county. Mm-hmm. It's, I'd say it's, it's, it's ripping apart our community. It's making it unsafe, unstable, unhealthy, and we're wasting a lot of money not solving any of these issues currently. Sure. Now, Levi, I want to ask you sort of the same question, which is um, this disconnect between the dollars that the county is throwing at the homelessness issue, sort of the increased spending um, that's also we're seeing an increase in homelessness over the past several years, um, the disconnect between dollars being spent and the dollars actually reaching people who need services. Um, with your background and sort of your uh, lived experience of this issue, um, what's, your, what's your take on this? Like, what is, what is the source of that disconnect? Yeah, um, I think so. I'm somebody who's like really broken down the numbers so many times. And it was like a light bulb and an epiphany went off for me when I realized like the housing part of it is actually cheaper. Um, And um, we do right now, we have a shortage of housing. Last year, I'll give you last year's statistic because I know it better, but it was we were 97,000 apartments short just in the city of San Diego. And so um, when you have and, – and to add to what Michael said, also where it's not you know, being a money issue, um, obviously we have uh, somewhere around 170,000 people living below the poverty line in San Diego. Um, you could raise all of their wages, right? They would still be like living in poverty. But if you don't build more housing, then what creates the market rents is that demand. You know, so mm-hmm. if we don't continue to build more housing and get more units online in San Diego, and at the rate that they are disintegrating and falling apart, um, we lost all of our SROs, which was a great, you know, naturally occurring, naturally occurring affordable option. Um, and so, I think that um, there's kind of this idea where the nonprofits exist to either provide subsidies or build housing. Some some nonprofits do build housing, and I'm super grateful for that. Um, not all nonprofits are, are in that um, arena necessarily. It's very hard for sort of entry-level nonprofits to get into the arena of actually providing housing. Um, but typically, like Michael said, yeah, it's going um, all to the operations and 
And one example that I'll give is, you know, say um, an organization is employing an employment specialist, which is someone who's meant to help somebody get a job, right? And I speak to this because it was like my route in particular, but I still struggled very long financially um, because of kind of the bootstrap method. But what's unique in San Diego is particularly for transition age youth, um, they're not going to necessarily start out making much more than minimum wage. Um, And so instead of an employment specialist having to be like, okay, we're going to get you a job and then we can go look for an apartment, it's okay, we got to get you two or three jobs. Or we got to get you one job that pays $39 an hour so that you can get a studio in San Diego, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, so there's some, some things like that where, you know, that 40 grand um, may be better invested in something like a independent living where um, there's being like a creation of housing uh, being made or, or other forms. But, uh, yeah, yeah, so... I wanted to also talk about something you said, Michael, which is this idea that, you know, at the end of the day, this comes down to housing, but that there are certain barriers to additional housing um, in San Diego County. I wanted for you to like sort of explicate explicate that a bit, like talk about what are some of the existing barriers, reasons why we can't build more housing, like what's sort of in the way of that? Well, I think the biggest one is people don't want more housing in their neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They don't want uh, high density housing, especially and we've seen this over and over and over. Uh, the community push back to, to new projects, and then they get watered down, either made smaller or for people other than homeless people or something other than affordable housing. And it's also because it's so expensive to build housing that we're even seeing higher-end apartments slowing down because those projects aren't penciling out like they would a year or two ago. It's just the costs have, have risen so much. So there's a lot of factors to it, uh, and certainly in coastal areas, uh, all up and down, you know, Southern California, there's there's not a lot of land. So we have to do it bigger infill projects. And in San Diego, where we have infrastructure that has been ignored for decades, we don't have a good infrastructure here, meaning sewer and and different and different roads and things like that to support a lot of additional. Uh, density in some areas. And so there's, you know, communities have some good reasons to push back on the additional density. And then they have some, what we'd call not in, not in my backyard reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, but we just, it all comes back to the lack of leadership, not just on the issue of homelessness, but the, on the issue of infrastructure and a lot of things that are facing our communities. But what we're seeing, and I think homelessness is just kind of the canary in the coal mine, is this growing wealth divide. And we certainly see it more here in areas in Southern California where you have coastal areas that are very expensive. We have uh, wealthier people living along the coastal areas. And then poorer people are being pushed further and further inland because the middle class ends up living where the poor people would. So the poor people just keep getting moved out. And what happens is naturally affordable housing, which is housing that's, that's just not as nice, as weathered over the years, is being fixed up. Those areas are being gentrified. The rents in those areas are going way up, and that keeps pushing people out into further and further. Now, what happens is, and this is a little off topic, but uh, what happens is poor people are being subjected to worse and worse conditions, worse climate, worse access to to community benefits such as schools and libraries and things because they're being pushed further and further away from those types of things. And they have to travel further and further to their jobs. So their quality of life continues to decrease. So people are, there's this growing wealth divide between haves and haves nots in our society. And that's going to lead to more and more problems. And And the amount of people who are becoming homeless is is like I say, the canary in the coal mine, it's we're seeing more and more folks, especially senior citizens, which are, are a very fast-growing part of the homeless population, uh, people who are 55 and older. Uh, I, I'm seeing even a lot more people who are 70 and older out here on the streets. And these are folks that are on fixed income, so they cannot weather rises in inflation like working younger folks can who are getting pay increases at a higher rate. So we're seeing a lot of older folks losing their housing, and this should be very troubling because it's it's it talks about a, it's it's really about a broader issue, 
And homelessness is just what's happening first. And I think we're going to continue to see much bigger, bigger issues occur because of this. Yeah. No, I like your your point about it being sort of a canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. I think that homelessness um, sort of um, maybe signifies that, that wealth divide that we're seeing in our society. And specifically, I think it's amplified in Southern California, right? Like where you ha- talked about where you have like these coast, these very affluent coastal areas and then you, you move a little bit inland and people are living in much different conditions and sort of just how that's like furthering that, that divide, um, specifically in California and for our local listeners here in San Diego, um, I think it's, it's fair to say that that issue is amplified in San Diego, that you have the haves and have nots like more and more and more and more. And we're seeing that. I think it's a very visible issue, too, because like, you know, you go into San Diego downtown, for instance, and you're looking at these high rise you know, 30, 40 story apartments or whatever in some places. And, um, and then just a couple blocks away where from these places where, you know, rent is like $3,000 for a two bedroom. And then you go down the street and there's encampment after encampment after encampment. Um, and I wanted to talk about that a bit. So a recent policy that came out from the city of San Diego was the um, homeless encampment ban actually, um, which is beginning to like enforcement has been sort of like was, was sort of lax at first. And now they're beginning to crack down. I think about Boa park and, um, if I'm not mistaken. So um, I wanted to ask you, Levi, like as far as the, the homelessness encampment ban that came down from the city, you know, saying that we're not going to tolerate these encampments anymore um, in public places. We're actually going to be arresting people. Um, uh, again, like wh- what does that actually do in terms of addressing homelessness? What does that actually do in terms of solving um, some of the root causes of, of homelessness? Um, so for me, it was just really disappointing to see. And um quite embarrassing at some point to kind of see the narrative that they were uh, spouting that it essentially that people needed to be forced into shelter. And meanwhile, for the last two years, I, and really in the last like six months, um, have had person after person. It is, I cannot tell you what it is like to not have just one 75 year old female that you have to tell her, no, there was nothing available again today. I'm so sorry. But when you have multiple of those people, you know, like, um, and and then people with disabilities are even tougher to get a shelter space for in San Diego. Um, so what was crazy to me essentially was like I had those, those same politicians had like shook my hand and done the very uh, political thing and said, thank you so much for the work that you do. Um, and then meanwhile, while we were shouting, wait, hold on, nobody's saying they don't want to go to shelter. We have, you know, like lists and lists and people were telling every single day they're full by 9am, like the shelters are full every day. And so, um, this idea that people needed to be forced, uh, even at one point, uh, I think the mayor said, okay, well, you know, we know it's like a percentage of them that need to be forced even by that, um, line of thinking, why would you bypass the people, you know, waiting and meeting with their case managers every day and being consistent in their treatment plan? Why would you bypass that um, to force people into a shelter bed that does not exist anyway um, and then have the police to do it um, who, you know, unfortunately are not experts in being trauma-informed? So, um yeah, so that's that's kind of my take on it. It's been really uh, detrimental to to kind of see it unfold. So, hey there, San Diego. If you're on the hunt for a way to enhance your health, I have a great recommendation for you. Dorado Nutrition is a company that's all about helping people live their best lives through top-notch American-made supplements. Their expert team has crafted products to support a variety of health needs, from weight management to muscle building, and more. And with ingredients like Vidogia Agrestis and Tonkat Ali, praised by a well-known neurobiologist seen on the Joe Rogan podcast, these supplements can be just what you need to reach your health goals. And for a limited time, you can get 25% off your purchase by using promo code SD2023 at checkout. So if you're looking for a way to improve your health, Dorado Nutrition might just be the solution you need. I'm curious to know, and either you can answer this question. So you take, because the fact is, is we don't have enough services for all the people on the streets. Like, And the, then, and then, so let's be clear, like, and differentiate the terms, because this is something like that often gets very jumbled in the media. And when um, they, they promote, oh, we have a plan, like, 
they get very confusing on this terminology, but services and shelter can be very different. So there's yeah, that's yeah. what I was going to say is like so, and then housing is different from that. So, so they're saying you you can't stay on the street. You have to go into you have to go. Um, we have to take you and put you into shelter. But um, how does that work? If they're the fact is is that the number of homeless people are actually outpacing um, existing um, long term shelter. Like how like wh- where's the logic in that? Like I I'm, this is a legitimate question. I'm not being um, farcical. Like I genuinely don't understand like what. Like, is it that they have transitional housing for these people, but they don't have long-term permanent housing? Or, like, where's the disconnect between saying, like, okay, we we recognize that we don't have enough shelter, but you have to go into shelter? Yeah, let me throw some context into this. So, Voices San Diego, I think it was toward the end of last year, uh, looked into that uh, the fact that there's not shelter for everybody who's out there. And they found a startling uh, statistic of only 37% of 6,620 people during the time they studied, of those referrals by outreach and police were actually able to get into shelter. So we're talking about two-thirds of those 6,620 people were denied shelter. They weren't able to get in. Thousands and thousands of folks who wanted to get in were denied. There, there just isn't the shelter available. And, and the city's own numbers back that up. And so it, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, I, w- I wanted to ask, so what, what happens then if you, you t- tell a person, hey, you, you can't stay here, you know, you have to go to shelter, there's no shelter bed for them, do they just get kicked out back? Like, what, what happens there? Like, what happens to that, that person? Like, what does their story look like from the time that um, this ban goes into place that they say, no, you can't stay, you know, at this park or in this public s- space anymore, but we don't have a shelter bed for you? Like, where does that person realistically go? Another sidewalk. Another park, like another in another city, or no? Most most folks will just go to a different area. Okay. I was uh, kind of near the post office, and we had some of our clients like move back towards Imperial, which was insane because they had just cleared commercial. Um, but that's all they do is they just shuffle about to where you know they're hopefully in their mind is, is not saying the sa- seeing the same police uh, in the same area every day. Mm-hmm. So in my fourteen years of working on this. Uh, this this encampment ban, this is nothing new. We already had laws on the books that criminalize the behaviors that the encampment ban does. It, the encampment ban just specifies parks and schools and, and some different areas. It's just a PR move. It was actually— That's what I was going to ask you. Is this just, just shuffling people around? Is that just mm-hmm. for publicity? Like, it is, or, or and it's nothing new. In the 14 years I've been working on this, this is all they've done primarily is just shuffle people around. And just to give you an example of how dysfunctional this is, so I'm out on the street the other day, and the police are doing a a large encampment sweep, and they're trying to force this one person uh, to make a choice. You either go to jail or you take a shelter bed. And there's only, I think that day, there was probably only about 20 shelter beds available that morning. So I think there was five police officers around this one young guy, basically giving him this ultimatum. Meanwhile, just feet away, there's a couple begging another cop to get into a shelter. So I, I went over there and I listened to see if he was going to be able to get them into the shelter. He turned them away. He said, we don't have anything for you. Meanwhile, there's five cops over here because they don't want this person on the sidewalk giving him the ultimatum. What they told the couple, oh, go try your local church. That was their answer. It, it was it was surreal to actually watch the fact that you have people who are begging to get into shelter. Not one, but two. Yeah. And, and, and being turned away, meanwhile, over here on just feet away, just 20 feet away, you have all of our taxpayer money going to try to force somebody who doesn't really want to go into shelter. He's probably been in shelter before. It hasn't worked out. He's had his belongings stolen, whatever. There's a lot of good reasons why people don't want to go into shelter. But why don't we focus on the folks who are begging? The two-thirds of the 6,620 people who were turned away, why aren't we focusing on them instead of worrying about the folks who the, the the small percentage of folks who don't want to go in for whatever reason. And we can provide those other folks a different pathway. I also want to say that they also do, when they do this point-in-time count, the annual census of, of people who are homeless, they do a, a survey in the jail, and they do a representative sample of the people in jail, and about 32% of the people answered that they were homeless. So that's not added into our annual census. So we already are arresting people yeah, who are homeless at a very, very high rate. We have over a thousand folks probably in jail that are coming back to the street at any time and, and they're just rotating in and out. So we already know that arresting people for sleeping on the sidewalk isn't an answer to anything. It's actually the most costly 
a temporary yeah, band-aid, right? Yeah, is extremely expensive. Yeah, eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year, whatever it is, it's it's extremely expensive. We could certainly provide housing and services for those folks, and they're released without any help. They come right back to the street. They set up. A yeah, there's tent. no follow through. There's there's no follow through. There's no safety net to try to keep that person from from getting another ticket and arrest for for sleeping on the sidewalk. So. The, the system is broken. We're spending a lot of money not solving homelessness, and this, I think, goes back to the cost. The, the amount we're spending on police to run around and move people from sidewalk to sidewalk is expensive. Meanwhile, as we all know, response times, when you call the police for a real emergency, our response times here in San Diego are pathetic. Uh, response times, I think I read for a report of a missing child, is 45 minutes. Meanwhile, we have the police out there shuffling time. homeless people from one sidewalk to another. It's insanity. I've never seen anything like it. And quite honestly, our elected leaders should be run out of town. They are so pathetic. And and uh, all they do is is try to get elected to a, a higher position to get out of this mess that they've helped create. Yeah, I want to talk about um, our local electeds. But first, Levi, I wanted to ask you, in terms of this sort of um, idea that we're kind of talking about here, in terms of the, the sort of criminalization of homelessness that goes along with the policy of, of an encampment ban, um, sort of this model of like, you know, people are sleeping on the streets. Let's, let's arrest them. Let's put them in jail. He talked about, I think 32, 33% of people in jail are actually homeless in San Diego County. Um, sort of, and then there's no follow through. That's the other thing that Michael was talking about in terms of like that. There's no, like once you get released from jail, there's no services that are offered to you. There's no safety net. Um, like, is there in your experience and in the time that you've studied this issue, like, is there a different model for sort of treating people then, you know, arresting them, releasing them without services. Like, what does that model look like? What does that solution look like in terms of the follow through of once someone is, you know, um, incarcerated or once someone is, um, you know, released back into the world? Like how what's a different model for treating those people? Um, yeah, so that's a good question. So sometimes um, we will I mean, it can be uh, really interesting seeing a block change day by day. Um, and so we can say goodbye to all of our clients at the end of our shift one day and then come back the next day and there's, you know, a few missing or a few less tents. Um, and so we have, like, one of the different ways that we would handle that is, like, we'll look them up in the system to see if they've been arrested, see if they're in any hospitals. Um, and if we are able to see that they've been arrested, um, typically it's something that, they get released within three to five days for because the jails are full anyway. But um, in those three to five days, um, you know, whatever was left behind, essentially whatever gets left behind gets thrown away, like, immediately. That's kind of one of the, um, I guess, incentives for the police to arrest somebody is to get rid of all of their stuff. Um, But um, the... So then when they get out, um, too, they may feel like there was something with that particular police officer because it may not have been their first interaction with, hey, you got to move your stuff. Um, Another thing uh, that we've tried to uh, get the police to narrow down as far as the encroachment laws, because even what I feel like I'm seeing more is more than the homeless encampment ban being um, implemented is they're still using the encroachment law, which already existed before. and so we can't seem to get a clear answer sometimes, okay, is it three by four feet that they can use or is it 10 feet? And so you have a lot of discrepancies where it's just left up to the individual officers to define what encroachment looks like. And then there's a great deal of discrimination um, and all of that that can go into it. Um, but, yeah, so then three to five days, uh, if it's going to be longer. We can, like, schedule to go to their hearing, but typically – um, they're back out in three to five days. No extra resources or communication from the police department. There's no, you know, hey, we picked them up. Hey, we dropped them off. Um, and then going back to what I was mentioning before, too, and the difference between um, shelter and services is that um, a lot of the people who aren't in shelter does not mean that they're not service resistant. So there are different drop-in centers, various locations where they can go eat, get various types of case management, um, you know, clothing closets, uh, uh, you know, referrals to resources and, and things like that. 
um, that they are still actively participating in a treatment. It's just that the part that is missing is that end part, which is the housing. Mm. And Michael, I just want to flip it back to you before we move on real quick. So um, this idea that um, this sort of criminalization of homelessness idea that we've been talking about, like um, what is sort of the alternative model, as I asked Levi, in terms of, you know, somebody sleeping in a public space or maybe, to be honest, in some cases, somebody's causing a disturbance or they're causing a, uh, like a, an issue for people around them in public. Um, instead of arresting that person, instead of incarcerating that person, like what is sort of the alternative model that you would sort of endorse in terms of let's take that person and treat them differently to where there's actually follow through to where they actually get the help they need. Um, but like, what does that realistically look like? Um, and this goes beyond San Diego. This is like a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a very broad question, but like, um, because people say, well, what are you supposed to do with somebody who's, you know, breaking the law? Like, you know, you arrest them, but, but like, what's sort of the alternative model for, for treating people? So there's no one size fits all, but the gold standard for helping people, especially chronically homeless people, people who've been on the street for a long period of time, who have a, some kind of a disability, whether it's mental health or physical is permanent supportive housing. So permanent supportive housing provides affordable housing and usually very meager, but a place that people have their own door, their own bathroom, their own small kitchen with the supportive services. And the supportive services are tailored to what that person needs. And so we've we've shown here in San Diego and certainly around the country over and over and over that not only is this the most effective way at helping that person or family get off of the street, but it's also the cheapest way. It's much cheaper than what we're currently doing. Than incarcerating people. Uh, Incarcerating people, rotating people through hospitals, jails, shelters, everything else. So that's very, works very, very well. And in San Diego, uh, I believe our success rate with that is upwards of about 90% of people uh, stay in their housing when it's combined with the services. And it's called permanent supportive housing. And it certainly has worked all over the country. Now, the problem is we don't have enough of it, and we don't actually have enough of the, the, the qualified people to provide the services. And I'll, I'll bring up another number for you, another statistic, once again, out of the Voice of San Diego investigative report, that one of the largest providers in the city of San Diego, less than 8% of people who wanted detox beds after their sobering center visit, so if somebody's found and they're intoxicated or under the influence of something on the street, the police have the option of taking them into a sobering center where they can get sober and then see if they want to go into some kind of long-term help, some kind of long-term treatment, which is great, right? That's a great alternative. Don't arrest the person. This person has a, a need to get better, a need to get help for their, for, their, um, for their addiction, their substance use issue. So they go in the sobering center. But out of all the folks uh, who wanted to go into a longer-term detox bed after the sobering center— only 8% could get in during that time period they were in the sobering center and transitioned to a detox bed. It's not good. Why are we not building out our system to provide the help to people who are begging for it, basically, and who want it? That, that missed opportunity of all of those folks, the 92% of folks who couldn't get into a longer-term detox bed, that is a tremendous missed opportunity. Some of those people probably ended up dying because of the fact that we didn't help those folks in their moment of need, when they were reaching out to us and mm. saying, yes, yes, get me that bed, help me detox, help me get better, help me get on a path out of this addiction, out of homelessness. And we said no 92% of the time from this one provider. It makes no sense. It's insane. It's once again, why I come back to the fact, don't believe these elected officials. Don't believe the mayor's nonsense as he dribbles out all of this nonsense about how there's help for everybody. It's just not true. Their own data says it's not true. Yeah. And we're, we're missing opportunities to help people. We're missing opportunities to clear those encampments in a solutions-focused way. Instead of just moving those folks, let me tell you something I read just this morning. We talk about, is this encampment band doing anything? Well, of course it's not. None of the other bands did anything either. I just saw an article out of one of the local media outlets that people uh, who live around and who go into Tecolote Canyon Trail are in an uproar because all of a sudden there's folks in their area where there you didn't used to be. Well, because why do you think around. that is? Because yeah, of moved. course. Yeah. Okay. And I see that firsthand. So, uh, and Levi was talking about this a little bit earlier. Well, uh, we both know a lot of folks on the street and I go visit a lot of encampments in outlying areas and in downtown too. 
but there'll be an encampment gone, and then I'll see those folks in another encampment or a lot of times in a new area. And that's what we're seeing now is that uh, folks are being – the city is trying to push people further. They're really focusing on the downtown area because I think that's where the moneyed interests are. And they're actually pushing people more into the neighborhood areas, more in the neighborhood parks like this Tecolone Canyon Trail where there didn't used to be that many folks. And so I think that's a trend that we'll continue to see. I think the city really is just most interested in clearing out some of the encampments downtown. And But those folks aren't – they're just not magically going to disappear and get beamed up into yeah. outer space, right? They, they actually – the vast majority became homeless right here in San Diego. So they're not going to leave. This is their home. Just like it's mine and yours home. Yeah. Uh, most of us love it here. We don't want to leave. We have our family, friends, our, our networks here, our doctors, everything else. You know, some homeless people have those same things. Most homeless people have those same things that everybody else does because we all need those basics, right? The only difference is they don't have a home to live in. So they're, they're causing uh, – there's all these issues for that. Certainly for them sure. – because they're dying at an average of what twenty five years younger than most of us. I was going to ask you what the the rate of death is for. It's phenomenally high. Last year, I believe it was five hundred and eighty three. That may be a couple numbers off. In San Diego. Um, yes, in San Diego, and then um, just in my personal uh, caseload, as far as getting clients into permanent housing, um, in twenty twenty two, I was only able to get four clients into permanent housing, um, and twelve of my clients died. So, like, that's, like, exactly like that's what That's a sobering saying. number. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. What, in terms of just the, um, so the, the mayor has actually been criticizing some of the, uh, Mayor Todd Gloria has been criticizing some of the other cities for not handling their fair share of the problem, as he puts it. Um, he recently said, you have to ask why these other cities are choosing to ignore the problem. We're trying to help people. I don't think the same can be said of most other cities in this county. Um, now, is this just finger pointing or does he have a point? Well, I, I think to some degree he has a point and to some degree it's just finger pointing. Uh, the city of San Diego gets a tremendous amount of money from the state and federal government to help folks. These other cities don't. So the city and the county are usually the recipients of the federal and state money. Um, so, But on the on the flip side of that, we also see these other cities and counties vote down projects that could help people in their in their neighborhoods or in their cities. So I can't say he doesn't have some point, but I think a lot of it is he's just trying to deflect blame because he's done such a miserable job on this issue. Mm-hmm. Levi, do you um, – Michael's talked about, again, the lack of accountability from the political level. Um, you know, you're on the ground. You're dealing with people who, who face the harsh realities of homelessness every day. Do you sort of share the view that, like, at the, at the sort of the top level that there's just this – absolute lack of accountability from local elected, specifically, you know, the mayor or or county leadership? Like, is that something that you're, that you've sort of discovered in your experience? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Because too, I just, um, I, I just have really like learned wordsmithing and gotten a lesson in that like I never have before because, you know, on very basic things, like when they speak and they say, um, you know, but if people are going to deny the services we have in San Diego, when the conversation is being had about shelter, which, um, you know, we do have like plenty of services in San Diego. There's, you know, not really a shortage of places to like grab food in San Diego. But as far as actually getting that housing built, um, which we really need the help from our city leaders to do that, um, that's that's where the walk is not happening in the same way that the talk is. So. One of the the last things that I'll say is as far as um, housing first, when we have 97,000 apartment units short, um, that's one of those things that I feel like our political leaders have said, okay, we are adopting housing first. And everybody cheered and we said housing is a human right and everybody cheered, but we didn't build the housing. And and then, you know, sidewalks have human rights now. So, um, yeah, that's that's all. Before we go, I just want to talk about um, – we've talked a lot about like what doesn't work. We've talked about sort of the failure from the political level with local leadership. But um, the reality is, is that there are people um, such as yourselves who are working really hard every day, the people who are on the front lines of this fighting for the rights of the unhoused. And I just want to give like the last couple of minutes to sort of highlight some of those organizations, some of those stories 
Um, Levi, in particular, like, are, are there any organizations people can be aware of, things that we can get involved in um, that can sort of be helpful to our listeners? Yeah, so um, the organization that I'm with, Lived Experience Advisors, is a group of formerly homeless individuals who use our lived experience to advocate for policy change, but really solutions. Um, and we try to stay solution focused. So you can check us out at livedadvisors.org. Um, it's a good opportunity if, say, um, you know, you have a community group or rotary club that has ongoing questions about the homeless crisis um, and maybe wanting to speak with someone who has lived experience or a group of individuals and get lots of different perspectives, then we can come out and sort of educate people from our experience and then, you know, bridge some gaps. So. Absolutely. Michael, um, with everything that's um, not working, are there any sort of positive takeaways here, things that listeners can know about, um, things they can do, um, whether it's um, being involved in organization, volunteering, anything along those lines that people can be aware of? Yeah, I think people need to get more educated on the issue. Uh, quit listening so much to the politicians, that's for sure. Uh, people can reach out to me on my social media sites at Homelessness News San Diego. I'm very active on on most of the social media sites. I'm happy to tailor uh, advice if you want to get involved with different organizations on you know where you happen to to live and and what you might be able to do to get involved. Certainly, a Lived Experience Advisors is a great organization that actually is creating a business out of not only hiring people with lived experience, but actually infusing that knowledge into the community and into the discussion, which oftentimes we don't do. We stand over here. House people stand over here and say, this is what we should provide to homeless people instead of actually asking the client, hey, what do you need to get out of homelessness? And so we need to change the dialogue on homelessness. And that's what I would encourage your listeners to, to open up their minds to is, 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 is basically clear some of those, those thoughts like I had to do 14 years ago when I started working on this. I had to clear a lot of those perceptions and thoughts out of my head and just start learning from scratch. And you'll, you'll find that when you actually go and talk to people, a lot of those anecdotal experiences that you hear about or you see on, on YouTube aren't really the issue, aren't really, they don't define the issue of homelessness. They define that one person's issue of homelessness. And so just getting more educated on this issue, but certainly people can reach out to me. You're welcome to share my contact information. I talk to people and advise them all the time on where to donate money, where to spend their time, where to learn about this issue, and I'm happy to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I know that personally I could talk about this all day with you two. Um, It's been extremely insightful, and I just wanted to thank you both again so much for coming on. We're going to continue the series next week, and just thank you again to our listeners and to KCBQ. That's the gentleman. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.